We are continuing in our study in uh, Esther this morning. We're, we come to chapter 2, and there are many ways in which, or at least some ways, in which her story in chapter 2 parallels the fairy tale of Cinderella. So if you recall, in Cinderella you have a royal, and a mysterious person shows up at the dance, and she leaves her slipper behind. And so he's trying to find this, this one true love, and so he gathers all of the eligible bachelorettes in the kingdom, and the, they finally find the one who fits the slipper, so she's the one. Well, in Esther chapter 2, you've got the king, and he's looking for a new queen. So he gathers together all of the eligible bachelorettes in the kingdom, and they have a process that they go through in which he finds his soulmate. Uh, one of the big differences, however, between Cinderella the fairy tale and Esther's story is that Cinderella just had to dance. And Esther had to do much more than dance. She had to actually commit moral compromise. And that's the theme of chapter 2, and it's the theme of my message today. Esther has something to teach us about moral compromise. I'm going to say four things about that this morning. The first one is the temptation to moral compromise is common. It is a common temptation. Esther chapter 2, verse 2. Xerxes, the king, Xerxes' personal attendance suggested let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. The young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. And this advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. So here we see the criteria that Xerxes is looking for. He's not looking for a good personality. He's not looking for character. He's not looking for inner beauty. He basically has three things on his checklist, and that is youth, virginity, and physical beauty. I mean, he's a male chauvinist pig. Thank goodness that we men today have evolved past that <clears throat> superficiality. Continuing in verse 5, there was a Jew at the citadel in Susa whose name was Mordecai, who had been taken from Jerusalem with the exiles who had been deported with Jeconiah, the king of Judah. Notice the three verbs there, all referring to the exile, deportation. These Jewish people in Persia are a beleaguered people. And this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. She got the two names. She got the Jewish name Hadassah, the Persian name of Esther. When her father and mother died, so she's orphaned, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered into the citadel of Susa, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. So we see here, Esther's part of the Jewish people. They're very beleaguered people. They're down and out. They need a break. And they're about to catch a break. Because on this king's checklist, these three things, Esther checks all three boxes. And we don't get the reactions of the women who are taken into this beauty contest. There would have been mixed reactions, I'm sure. Uh, some young women would have resisted as they realize they're not going to be able to have a family in their village with all the support structures that are there. Others would have seen it as an opportunity, frankly. Life was hard, hard scrabble life. Hard, hard for us to compromise some, or to, uh, to understand sometimes what life, how hard it was and difficult it was for people at this time and in this culture. So the opportunity to become either the queen or even one of the king's concubines is an opportunity to live in the lap of luxury. Some of them undoubtedly would have seen this as winning the lottery. As far as Esther, how Esther felt about it, we're not told what her thoughts and her feelings were. It's 
probably safe to assume that she was somewhat conflicted. You know, we have the two names of Esther that are given there, and some commentators say this might be a reflection of, of her conflict between her Jewish identity, her identity as a child of God, and all of that Jewish biblical tradition, and the pressures of the Persian culture. So there's a tension there. And certainly it's a temptation to compromise. As a Jew, there's absolutely no way that she be, should be considering becoming the concubine of a Persian king. In the law of Moses, there were restrictions against interfaith marriage, among other things. But nevertheless, I think it's reflective, and it's a good application here, that this is a common temptation. We all live, if we're Christians, kind of with a dual identity. Hopefully, our primary identity is in Christ. And so morally, we're going along with what Christ teaches and what God teaches and what the Bible says about moral purity, for instance. But at the same time, there are pressures in our culture to compromise. What teenager has not experienced that is not experiencing that. We all did when we were teenagers and now more than ever and even on into adulthood. In other ways as well, there's the tension for moral compromise, the temptation. Even in the business world, for instance, am I primarily a Christian who's involved in business? So I look at other people, including my customers, I'm, I'm going to golden rule them and treat them the way I would want to be treated and as children of God, even if it might result in detracting from the bottom line? Or am I primarily a businessman who just has some religious commitments on the weekends? And the bottom line is what really matters. All is fair in, in business. So, so which is it going to be? Well, we're familiar with these types of temptations for moral compromise. Well, that's just number one. Number two, I'll say four things today. Second thing about moral compromise, preparation for moral compromise is opportune. It is an opportune time. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Verse nine, Esther pleased Haggai and won his favor. By the way, she did not just have his favor, she won his favor. She is trying to win this contest. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So she's not revealing that she's a Jew. Part of that, what that means is probably she is not keeping the dietary restrictions in the law of Moses. She's probably not faithfully keeping the Sabbath that would have tipped people off to her identity. And before a young woman's turn came, here's the process. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and cosmetics. The language actually says they're in the oil of myrrh for, for six months, in the perfume for six months. Some kind of fumigation process is going here. It may have actually even affected the complexion and the skin, removing imperfections, but they're really undergoing a process. Before they go in and each, each of these women has a turn to enter into the king's bedchamber. When it's her turn, the door closes. She makes her case, so to speak. The door opens the next morning. Then she goes into that area of the harem, which is for the concubines. And she lives out her life luxuriously, but basically a pointless life until or unless she's fetched by the king once again. So that's the process that they're going through. But the point I want to make here is Esther spends 12 months in this beautification process. That's 12 months for her to think about what she's doing, to think about potential moral compromise, maybe to justify that, maybe to rationalize that. But during this 12 months, she can turn back if she chooses to do so. So 
In this process leading up to a temptation, some of us may be in that today. We're considering something, doing something we know is not according to the will of God, but we're masters of justification and rationalization. But whether that's a long process or a short process, I call it the temptation zone, and we have the opportunity to turn back and be obedient to God during that time. James writes in James 1.14, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away, and these desires give birth to sinful actions. So there's the, the sin process. You've got a desire, a temptation, then the sin. Now, the sin is not the desire, and the sin is not the temptation. The sin is the sin. So in this process here, before we get to the sin, there's an opportunity, and God often provides a way for us to escape that sinful temptation. Let me give you an example. Now, some of you know, if you know me, you know, you know I like to take my morning walk, my time with God in South County Park, which is just about a half a mile from my house over here, somewhere between 6 and 6.30 in the morning before they're technically open. So I'm usually the only one over there, and it's, that's the way I like it. It's nice and quiet, and I'm walking around. It's just in before the sun actually comes up. And I was over there uh, just this past week, actually, and I happened to notice this early in the morning, someone had left a camp chair. Like, I call it a camp chair, a folding chair, from the previous night's baseball game. They just left it there. Pretty nice chair. I took a picture of it. Nicer than any of the folding chairs that I have. Very sturdy, very well-made, kind of an expensive chair. Got the cup holder. I don't know if you can see it. It's got a zippered compartment on the other side. You can put some valuables in there. And my first thought is, Finders keepers, right? Finders keepers. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. I mean, obviously somebody didn't appreciate their chair or they didn't want their chair. And maybe this is way of God's way of providing me with a nicer chair. But so I took this picture out so that I could send the picture out to my council of advisors. I sent the picture out to my council of advisors and said, hey, I'm a Christian. What do you think? Am I justified in taking this chair or should I leave this chair behind? So let's pretend for a minute that you're on my council of advisors. And I, it's last week, and I've sent you this picture, and I've asked you this question. I'm going to give you, we're going to show of hands here, and no judgment, no judgment. I think a case can be made either way. But if I sent that to you and I asked you, raise your hand if you think I would be justified, nothing wrong with taking the chair, making it my own. All right, there you go. Okay, a few brave souls raise their hand right here. How many of you think that I would not be justified? It's not right for me to take that chair home. Okay, you all are fired. <laughs> no wonder I didn't send you the picture. No, but so actually my council of advisors uh, sided with the second group that raised your hands here and said, Steve, I'm not quite sure that's exactly the right thing to do. So I wound up leaving it that day. I left it behind. And when I was back the next morning, sure enough, it was gone. So either the rifle owners came and claimed it or some thief came and took my chair. But that was a very short window of temptation right there. I just had a few 15 minutes maybe where I was debating whether or not to do that. Esther's window was very long. It was a tw at least a 12-month window where she's debating whether and what to do. And during those time periods, often God will come to us and he'll provide a way for us to escape temptation. What did Paul write? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. God is faithful. He will not allow you. The temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And the Bible has examples of this. 
Uh, if you are familiar with the life of David, for instance, David had helped out Nabal at one point, and he sent men asking for remuneration at the proper time. And not only did Nabal refuse to pay, he insulted David and his men in the process. And when David found out about this, he gathered 400 warriors and he hit the warpath. He said, Nabal, by this time tomorrow is going to be dead. So he's on the warpath. Well, when Nabal's wife found out about it, Abigail, she saddles up some donkeys with provisions and she hustles out to intercept David on the warpath, which she does. And she says, hey, I apologize. My, my husband's a fool. Don't, don't pay any attention to him. Here's what he should have paid you. And she gives that to David and she throws him, herself on his mercy. And here's how David interpreted her interception. He says in 1 Samuel 25, 32, praise the Lord who has sent you to meet me today. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. He saw this as a divine intervention. God gave him a way out so that he did not follow through on that temptation. And we've probably done that. There have been times when we've been tempted. God gave us a way out and we took it. There may have been other times when we were tempted. God gave us a way out and we ignored it. Simply hardened our hearts and went ahead and did what we wanted to do anyhow. You think about Judas, for instance. And Judas on a Tuesday, he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then he had about three days there to think about it, justify it, rationalize it. I'm sure he was conflicted. We know he was, he, was, he was stricken with guilt and shame after the fact. But in that three-day period, he could have returned the money like he eventually did. And even at the Last Supper, when Jesus had several of the things he said, but here's one of the things Jesus said with the 12 disciples sitting there, including Judas. And Jesus said, the Son of Man must die but how terrible it would be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Why did Jesus say that? Well, a lot of people believe he was giving Judas one last chance. He's saying, Judas, I know what's about to happen. This does not have to happen. It doesn't have to be you. You don't have to follow through. He's trying to prick Judas's heart, give him one last chance to repent while he's in this temptation zone. But as you know, Judas hardened his heart and he went through with the dirty deed. We can call upon the grace of God when we're in that temptation zone and God will help us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Hebrew writer says, speaking of Jesus, this high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The grace he's talking about here is not grace after the fact, after we've sinned. It's not the grace of forgiveness. It's the grace before the fact, before we've sinned. It's the grace, the power, and the strength, and the intervention of God to help us resist the temptation. So that's the second thing. That's the second thing about temptation. We're saying three th uh, four things today. Now the third thing, third point, the act of moral compromise is acknowledged by God. The act of moral compromise is acknowledged. Back to verse 15 in chapter 2, when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai suggested. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month and the 7th year of his reign. Now, if you compare that time marker to the first chapter, it's been about four years since Xerxes first started this process. And assuming he did not delay long, and there's been one virgin per night, there's been about 1,000 Persian virgin women who passed through the king's bedchambers 
before Esther gets there. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And the superlatives for Esther are piling up. So he set a royal crown on her head. He made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So her turn comes. Unlike Vashti, the queen that preceded her, who refused to be a sexual object for the king, Esther is more than willing. The king is delighted with her, obviously. Subsequent readers, not so much. In the Midrash... For instance, there is great efforts to absolve Esther of any culpability for moral compromise. Now, the Midrash is not a skin disease. The Midrash was an ancient commentary on the Old Testament by these ancient rabbis. So they would comment on what was in the Old Testament. They would add to it. They would interpret it. They would interpolate. And some of these Jewish commentators said, for instance, well, God hid Esther from the king. She never really had any physical relations with him at all. One Jewish rabbi suggested God sent a spirit to sort of take her place so she never was morally compromised. Others have suggested Esther being a young Jewish woman in this Persian court and all the pressures brought against her could not have been expected to resist that pressure and so therefore she is not culpable. But Ian Duguid writes this, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. Now, do you see what he's saying right there? If someone's willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience is always an option. For instance, Daniel, right, an exile in the Babylonian court, refused to compromise his dietary restrictions. That was very risky. Daniel refused to stop praying three times a day, even when that was made illegal. As a result, he was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to commit idolatry in Babylon and bow down to the golden statue. As a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. If someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God is always possible. And so Brian Gregory writes in summary, it's very difficult to avoid the most obvious reading of the text, however morally disappointing it is. Esther was a Jewish girl who probably did not follow the dietary laws or observe the Sabbath and who certainly fornicated with a pagan king. The simple fact is that when she found herself in a hard place, she did not resist, she compromised. Now maybe our trouble is not so much with the Bible as with our expectation of the Bible. We want the Bible to give us heroes who are morally pure. They always do the right thing. But the Bible does not whitewash as heroes. It presents us these examples, warts and all. All with their moral compromises. Think about Abraham. If you know the backstory of Abraham, he was a liar and a coward. And yet God in his grace still used Abraham for his redemptive purposes. Moses had an anger issue cost him his access to the promised land, but God in his grace still used Moses. Think of David. Now, if you know David, more, more material given over to David than any other person in the Old Testament. Now, David, as you know, committed adultery and murder and covered it up. But God in his grace used David for his redemptive purposes. 
These aren't heroes so much as anti-heroes. The only people that God uses are morally compromised people. That's all he has available to him, which brings me to my last point. God's posture toward moral compromise is redemptive. It's not to excuse moral compromise, but God's posture toward moral compromise is redemptive. John 18, 27, Peter denied it, and at that moment a rooster began to crow. So this is years later, of course, and Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's taken to be tried before the high priest, and he's being accused falsely, and later he's beaten and then scourged and then crucified. But during that examination time before the high priest, Peter had followed along, and you know, he was in the outer courtyard, and three times he was challenged by various people, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? And three times, how did he respond? No, 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 I don't, I don't even know him. An inexcusable compromise and betrayal, and he was stricken with guilt and with shame, fled into the night crying. You can only imagine how he felt. And at that moment, as Peter was betraying Jesus, compromising, Peter was being fa- Jesus was being faithful and loyal and going through the process of redeeming a moral compromiser like Peter. And moral compromisers like us. And after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and he singles out Peter. And he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter answers what? Yes, I love you. And three times, Jesus responded, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He gave Peter a commission, a pastoral commission in his kingdom, the church. We may know what it's like to commit moral compromise. It may be in a sexual area. Maybe we had premarital sex. Maybe we've had extramarital sex. Maybe we're living with consequences from that. Some people get an incurable disease. But you know, even an incurable disease can cause someone to draw closer to God and realize spiritual truth in a way they would not have otherwise done. Maybe it results in a, an unwanted pregnancy. We think, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? But you know, sometimes a child from a union like that can wind up being a blessing to a parent or to the kingdom at large. You think of Solomon, the result of the union between David and Bathsheba. If it wasn't for Solomon, however, we wouldn't even have an entire book of the Bible or two. Or we may think, can we ever have a, a normal and healthy relationship with someone else? Yes. Whatever the compromise might be, God has a way of taking our moral compromise, again, not to excuse it, but even a moral compromise and working it into his plan and having useful service for us, we moral compromisers, in his kingdom. A Portuguese proverb reads as follows. God writes straight, but with crooked lines. 